And now let's hear from our champion, Coco Golf. Coco, you burst onto the scene about four years ago. A lot of expectations on your shoulders. What does it mean to win your first Grand Slam title on home soil? Oh my goodness. Uh... I'm a little bit in shock in this moment. You know, that French Open loss was a heartbreak for me, but I realized, you know, God puts you through tribulations and trials, and this makes this moment even sweeter than I can imagine. I'm just thankful for this moment. I don't have any words for it, to be honest. Arena came out super strong today. Where did you find the belief to turn this match around? I don't know. I just knew that if I didn't give it my all, um, you know, I had no shot at winning. Arena's an incredible, incredible player. Congratulations on the number one ranking. It's well-deserved. I always tell my team all the time that, you know, you're a really nice person behind the scenes and the competitive and the fire that you bring to the court is something that makes sports better. So congratulations to you and your team for this result. What about your team? You had a great embrace with your mom and dad. They've been with you through thick and thin. Your brothers are back at home, your grandmother. What message do you have for all of them? Can I take the mic for this one? Sure. Thank you. Okay, God. Well, thank you first to my parents. Today was the first time I've ever seen my dad cry. <laughs> he doesn't want me to tell you all that, but he got caught in 4K. You know, he thinks, he's a, he thinks he's so hard, but, you know, it's not. So thank you guys. I mean, you believed in me from the beginning. I've been coming to this tournament. My dad took me to this tournament, sitting right there watching Venus and Serena compete. So it's really incredible to be on this stage. I just read your numbers, including a title. Something about New York brings out the best in you. Why is that? Yeah, I mean, uh, first of all, I want to ask Novak, what are you still doing here? Come on. <laughs> I mean, uh, no, jokes apart, I mean, uh, what is it, our third final? Uh, maybe not the last, who uh, hope so, I mean, because you're probably going to be in many, in many more. I don't know when are you planning to, to slow down a little bit, but uh, congrats to you and your team. I mean, 24. Uh, I feel like I have not a bad career and I have 20 titles, you have 24 Grand Slams, wow. And uh, so yeah, congrats to you and your team, you guys are amazing. You know, he, he pushes me to be better and uh, I said this one time in, uh, in Australia, but I'm gonna say it again because it's a different city, new people. First we met when I was probably 500 in the world and he was super kind to me, you know, not, nothing special, but he treated me as a normal person where I was surprised. I was like, wow, that's amazing, you know? And he still does, nothing changed. 24, 30, 12 Grand Slams, nothing changes. And I think that's, uh, that's something great about a person, you can say. Thank you for that. And thank you for the tennis. Congratulations. Novak, 50 years ago at the U.S. Open, Margaret Court won number 24. 
total different era. You've come through the golden era. You have 24. What does it mean? Well, uh, I don't know where to start. Um, it obviously means the world to me. You know, I'm kind of repeating myself, but uh, I have to have to say it every time that I'm really living my childhood dream, you know, to compete at uh, the highest level in the sport that uh, has given me and my family so much, uh, you know, coming from uh, very difficult circumstances and adversities during 90s, couple of wars in our country and being able to, to push that through, uh, especially for my parents, giving a lot of sacrifice to support me to play. I love you. Thank you so much. <clears throat> Enough talking about myself, you know, because Daniel said too many nice words and sorry I didn't start uh, congratulating you. I want to congratulate you for a fantastic uh, tournament. I'm sorry about the result today and uh, please don't get this in the wrong way. Happy anniversary to your wife, I'm sorry. It comes from a good place, honestly, you know, it's not... Uh, if I knew that the anniversary is today, maybe, you know, the result. <laughs> um, jokes aside, uh, Daniel has been... Incredibly, incredibly nice and kind to me, to my team. I, I think you, since you were, you know, a, a junior, 14, 15, you started training with your coach, and it's nice to see the evolution of of your relationship, professional relationship, what you have achieved, your, what you have done, and I know that there is a lot more for you to achieve in the in the future years. So good luck with that, for sure. You will you will win more slams, no doubt. And, uh, I I just want to say that. Uh, you, sir, mentioned what you love about Daniil, um, and I agree with you. I think he has definitely the most authentic personality out there and never change, please, with your celebrations, with your, you know, comments. I, I love it. Definitely the best. episode 40 of Life and Life Only. This is a little bit of an impromptu one, prompted by the events of the weekend in sport, specifically tennis. I've been meaning to do a podcast about tennis for ages, actually, but I was trying to find a way where I could fit it to the Lalo Life and Life Only format. I was considering just doing a standalone video because I just wanted to talk about the um, what they call the GOAT debate. GOAT is the uh, greatest of all time. Various other things. But watching the finals of the US Open and having watched the French Open, Wimbledon and the US Open, in fact, over the last three months, there's so much material with tennis in terms of sports psychology and in terms of, as you'll know if you see the uh, title of the podcast, media and fame, there's just so much material that after the finals, I was actually at work the next day and I had a bit of a lull and I started writing notes. So you could say I was getting paid to prepare this podcast and I don't know if you ever find this, but when you're getting paid for things, you know, when you're able to do things at work, it seems sweeter somehow. And uh, the ideas generator started going and didn't stop for about 10 minutes and I had enough for a podcast. So uh, let's see how this goes. The other thing that happened uh, last week was I was perusing a charity shop, as I do here in England, and I happened upon the book The Inner Game of Tennis, which I had read years ago, but uh, it seemed appropriate since the US Open was still going on, it was a. I found it very inspiring, and I thought we should talk about sports psychology. Like I said, also since I've been absorbed in mainstream media content of the tennis, 
and also in my car as well. I'll get to that in a sec. Where normally, because I don't have a TV, I tend to seek out alternative media, as you know, and of course put out alternative media content. Yeah, I thought there was there was plenty there, and I mean these top tennis players are big stars now, and it's a sport that's seen a lot of casualties of fame. Let's be honest. Uh, Jennifer Capriati, I guess, is a famous example, but there are ones in very recent years which I'm going to get to, and ones actually arguably happening now. I did do a previous episode of Life and Life Only with a, a sporting flavour. In fact, looking at table tennis, which is the sport I play myself, and nerves. That was episode 18, The Way of the Nervous Official. I called it a tragic comedy about table tennis, and it was based on a true story, but I tweaked a few details. But I did also talk about nerves, and I think I mentioned... Um, Jana Novotna and the Wimbledon final of 1993, which is very, very difficult to watch. I did have a look back at some of it, and it's, uh, oh, you feel for her. Uh, that was a famous occasion where she uh, choked. That's the expression they use for it when you're about to win and the nerves get to you and, and your game falls apart. Now, the inner game of tennis uses tennis as a springboard to talk about, let's say, personal psychology as a whole, you know, and performance in any field. Rather like, um, if you know my other podcast, or one of my other podcasts, Glass Onion, on John Lennon, I use John Lennon as a springboard to talk about all kinds of other things. Some of the ideas in the book will be quite common now due to the influence of the book, really. And that's the sad trick, isn't it, that others copy and update your ideas, so then you suddenly seem out of date, even though the ideas came from you. I mean, I don't think it, it formulated these ideas, but it came out in 1974. And I don't think sports psychology was as much of a thing then clearly as it is now but I found it very inspiring and just to pick one idea from it there's an idea in there that the battle is against yourself and um, I remember listening to Sylvester Sloan's commentary on the DVD of Rocky and he sort of says that when Rocky's fighting Apollo Creed he's really fighting against himself because if, if you know that film he's trying to prove he can go the proverbial I mean literally 15 rounds uh, which has now been reduced to 12 rounds by the way in boxing but it's the proverbial 15 rounds as well, the 15 rounds of life. And it's, you know, can you stay on your feet when you're, you're being pummeled by the best boxer in the world? It's that idea. And that the result, in a way, doesn't matter if you believe you've made the greatest effort and you've pushed your limits. That's a crucial thing, really. Now, that depends on the level you're playing at. I'm sure if you lose a big US Open final or any big final, you know, that, that, that's a difficult pill to swallow. And I'm sure, you know, Sabalenka and Medvedev are, are feeling that. And I can only imagine, I don't know, that deflation. But there's obviously something to the idea as well, that if you play badly and win, OK, at the top level, you're still the champion and you've had a career boost, but you may still feel a bit down. And we've seen that really because Sabalenka is now the world number one in the new rankings because the previous number one, uh, Iga Swiatek, went out in an earlier round. So Sabalenka is now world number one. But there was a quite a poignant moment where she was doing her on-court interview and whoever it was who was interviewing her says, Arena, you're now the world number one. And there was a big cheer. And you could just see on Sabalenka's face, she's thinking, yeah, I'm the world number one, but I didn't win this fucking match, did I? You know, I'm a, I'm a loser today. So that doesn't mean quite as much. But uh, I think at a lower level where the stakes are not so high, I think that personal satisfaction factor maybe is is even higher, you know. Let me give you my thoughts on the singles finals anyway. Like I said, talking about tennis and it's, it's really reaching a fascinating stage at the moment, the sport in general. So, I mean, tennis is brutal at the highest level. It's, 
it's a bit like boxing, but they're bludgeoning each other using, you know, with a tennis racket and a tennis ball rather than directly. There's a podcast I listen to called The Tennis Podcast. And uh, the phrase that the host, Catherine, uses, they go to scary places. You know, these guys really are pushing it to the limits and it's not very glamorous. Yeah, it's glamorous when you win. It's glamorous when you get the trophy and they hand you a massive check and everything and you go and hug your family and all that. And I'll, I'll talk about that in a sec. But, you know, it's, it's probably really bad for you as well, really bad for your body as well. I mean, maybe the Tour de France is more brutal, you know, when they're going up in those hills. And, of course, even the winner of the Tour de France is not going to get the financial rewards and the fame, if that's what they're after, that the tennis players will get. But um, if you look on YouTube, look up the match uh, Djokovic and Nadal in Australia. I can't remember which year it was, maybe about 10 years ago, perhaps a bit less. I think it was the longest Grand Slam final ever. They played nearly six hours, and you just cannot believe they're still standing at the end of it. I mean, and that's six hours of seriously high-octane tennis. But I think just as boxing is sanitised by TV, because I went to a few fights and then I stopped going because I didn't really like it, to be honest. You know, we see these tennis players looking pretty tired, and we think, oh, they're pretty tired, you know. Same way we might be tired if we played tennis for an hour at our local club or ran up a hill or something. So I go back to this point that it... Their lives are not generally glamorous. I'm, I'm going to get onto that later, but they're like touring musicians in a way because the tennis tour is absolutely brutal in terms of the travel and being away from your family. Because if you don't play enough tournaments, your your ranking will go down, and then of course, the further your ranking goes down, the more you're likely to play a top player in the earlier rounds of a competition. So it's like a vicious cycle, really. But, you know, in the same way that you might envy rock stars going out on tour and you think, oh, great, you know, they get to have all that adrenaline and adulation and all that sex and, you know, but all all that stuff, again, it sounds great up to a point, but then I bet it can get old really, really quickly. And um, one of the things actually I love in uh, both boxing and tennis, and, I, and I'm comparing those partly because I think they are quite comparable, but also they're they're the only real sports now that I pay attention to you know I used to love football when I was a kid in the 80s and into the 90s and I was one of those kids who pretty much followed every sport rugby not so much but really tennis and boxing the only ones I'm particularly interested in now I like the bits where they embrace at the end you know in tennis they embrace at the net and uh, and and in boxing as well because they respect each other for putting themselves through it particularly boxing I'd say obviously because it's got that element of violence and you are risking your life whereas in a tennis match you're not really risking your life I mean I hope there have never been any fatalities at a tennis match the fatalities in boxing are incredibly rare in fact but uh, obviously you're doing quite a lot of damage to the other person in terms of brain damage and so forth so um, Goff and Sabalenka are in one of the other guys on this tennis podcast said in a way every match is on Sabalenka's racket because she's such a good power player and her strokes are so aggressive and her problem of course is always that she doesn't have a plan b she just again like boxing if you think of I don't know early George Foreman she's a bit like that you know George Foreman did have a bit more technique than people give him credit for and there's a good video on the YouTube channel the modern martial artist but uh, it was fascinating because Goff basically had to keep the ball in play and wait for Sabalenka to make an unforced error. And I say unforced error in inverted commas, because you might say that none of these errors are really unforced, but you know what I mean. Goff won ugly, as the phrase says, as her coach Brad Gilbert was telling her, you know, keep it physical, win ugly, and all that. But then, you know, Coco did have a chance to play a few shots at the end, and of course she ended the match with a winner. And then, you know, they had this amazing moment where she just she just broke down and just 
burst into tears and she said it was tears of joy rather than relief but I think I mean obviously it's a mixture of loads of other things but I'm reminded of um, Steve Davis who swept all before him in the 80s and uh, has come out of it really he was known then as a robot and boring yeah they called him interesting on spitting image uh, ironically but Steve's actually got a great sense of humor and he cried his eyes out when he first won the world snooker but he said it is relief and he said I would have cried if I'd lost it's that relief that it's all over and the release of the pressure but you know seeing Coco embracing her dad and all her family and everything I mean you can't she is absolutely adorable and but partly I think because she's a strange mixture she's quite when you listen to her speak on the mic she seems very confident i think she is confident seems to like speaking but she's also very very vulnerable and you can see that because she she's had a few moments i mean there seem to be so many clips of her in floods of tears i mean she was in tears when she lost to uh, naomi osaka who i will be mentioning later as well and there's a lovely clip with subtitles where osaka says osaka's consoling her and says oh do you want to come up with me when I get my trophy or whatever it was and you know it was a nice moment and Coco was in tears when she lost the French to Swantec I think that was last year and I think she's suffering and I think behind all the joy of victory I'm not sure if things are going to get better for her I mean maybe part of the celebration is that I'm a Grand Slam champion so maybe people will leave me alone I don't know I don't know how many Grand Slams she actually wants to win you know there's there's this massive assumption in the media that everyone wants to be number one everyone wants to win as much as possible but maybe they actually don't maybe they want to win one Grand Slam make three million dollars and be left alone to some extent but I'm you know obviously she's not going to get left alone now I mean she's going to be an even bigger star and I, I fear for her frankly when they handed her that check for three million dollars I was thinking of the George Harrison quote to paraphrase something like, for every million pounds you get, it brings a million problems, you know. And believe me, the vultures will be circling. On the subject of money, I'm just going to play a little humorous clip. This is Sloane Stevens, who won the US Open Women's Singles in 2017, answering uh, some truly inane questions from the media with a couple of uh, funny replies. I know this is kind of fresh, but having done this once, does it give you a hunger to win another slam, to do this again, feel this feeling again? Of course, girl, did you see that check that that lady handed me? <laughs> like, yes. Man, if that doesn't make you want to play tennis, I don't know what will. Man. So, yes, definitely. If I'm not mistaken, uh, it's been 20 years since somebody in a women's final at the U.S. Open managed to score a 6-0. Does it make you feel a little bit bad for Madison, maybe? Bad for her? She was in the finals, too. What do you mean? Did you see the check she's about to get? I'm sure she'll be just fine. So, yeah, good timing there from Sloane. Great delivery, comic delivery. I suppose the bit about that that I don't like is the glorification of money, but, I mean, that's not her fault. But I, I like the, I like this truth aspect. You know, very occasionally you get sportsmen who say, I like the money. We always feel like they have to say, oh, it's about the title, it's not about the money, when clearly it is partly about the money. So, yeah, that was the women's. And then the men's final, Djokovic and Medvedev. I mean, Djokovic looked absolutely dead on his feet in the second set. The second set was one hour and 45 minutes. The match wasn't a classic, but at least there was a classic set. But I thought Djokovic was in real trouble, because if he'd lost that second set, I'm fairly convinced he would have lost the match. And I can't even imagine, I mean, that was after two sets and... They'd played however long they played, two and a half hours or, you know, again, very high octane tennis. 
I can't imagine what state they would have been in if that had gone to five. But the thing I wanted to point out is how the mental side and the situation affects the physical. Just as we saw at Wimbledon, Djokovic and Alcaraz, Djokovic had a point to go two sets of love up. And I think he would have won that match if he'd gone two sets of love up. Three points later, it's one set all. And the difference between two sets of love and one set all at this level is so enormous that Djokovic's body responding to going two sets of love up is so different to one set all because even though you know his body is taken it's been brutalized in the same way by a one hour 45 minute set when you go two sets of love up suddenly his body says to him oh I'm fine now what are you worrying about you know and he went out and he had a little break and he put his head under the cold tab or whatever he did and uh, wasn't going to lose after that let's be honest and in terms of the goat debate let me chuck out a few names to you most of which will be fairly obvious but I'll separate the men's and women's side. I think on the women's side, Martina Navratilova, as time goes on, becomes a more significant figure because the game has got more physical. And Martina was one of the first players to really take fitness seriously. And she really, she was one of the main ones that brought the game from that slightly more genteel tennis that you saw in, say, the 50s and 60s, definitely, and into the early 70s. And then suddenly, for good or bad, you know, you might think that's a bad thing. I don't necessarily. I think she's very significant. And she won 18 Grand Slam titles, but she also won a ton of doubles titles. I should also have a word for her big rival, Chris Everett. It's funny that when I was a kid, we got loads and loads of Wimbledon on TV, but we didn't really get the other Grand Slams so much. And it took me years to realise that Everett and Navratilova actually won the same amount of Grand Slam singles titles, uh, 18, as I said. But Everett won most of hers, well, not most, but Everett won a lot of hers at the French Open. And, and all I ever saw at Wimbledon was Navratilova beating Everett. So I, in my mind, I always thought of her as better. Yeah, I put Navratilova well up there. Steffi Graf won 22 Grand Slams, but there's a couple of minus points. I don't think she was a groundbreaking player. I think she was very athletic. She had a fantastic forehand, possibly the best forehand up to that point. But the two things that go against her is that Sabatini kind of bottled it in the 1991 Wimbledon final and uh, the aforementioned Novotna in the 1993 final basically had beaten Graf. She had two breaks of serve. She was 4-1 up on serve in the final set. The other thing which is even more important is what happened to Monica Seles. Now, if you know the story, I mean, this is just awful. Seles had won, I think, eight Grand Slam titles by the age of 19 and basically was sweeping all before her. The only one she couldn't win was Wimbledon. So Graf had a measure on grass, but she had Graf's measure on the other surfaces, the other Grand Slams, basically. And then, of course, she was stabbed by an obsessed fan in um, Hamburg, I think it was. And it was a Steffi Graf fan, and obviously no one's blaming Steffi Graf. But the damage that that did, I mean, physically, mentally, psychologically, emotionally, in every way, you know, Celes did come back and win one more Grand Slam, but I honestly think, and a lot of people will tell you this, had that not happened, we might have been talking about Celes as the GOAT. You know, she could have won easily 15, 20 Grand Slams. So I put that name in there as well, but that, that's a what-if, almost like Borg, really, on the men's side. And I'll get to that in a sec. And then, obviously, Serena. You have to talk about Serena Williams. Remarkable. 23 Grand Slams. Just been uh, superseded by Djokovic. Yeah, those are probably the names that I'd chuck out on the women's side. And on the men's side, obviously, you've got the big three. Just a word about Rod Laver, because um, you can judge the modern era, quote-unquote, of tennis 
as from 1968, the open era. And Lavo, it's very difficult to compare because he had one foot in the closed era and one, one foot in the open era. But he did do the calendar Grand Slam twice. I just wouldn't necessarily compare him. I think he's something out on his own. Maybe he is the greatest. But the game is so difficult to compare. I actually did put together a top 10. For what it's worth, this is my top 10 men's players in the open era, discounting Lever. And here goes. So number 10, I've got Mats Villander. Honourable mentions to Andy Murray, Guillermo Vilas, maybe even Gerolitis, Stefan Edberg, Jim Courier, Boris Becker. And I'm sure there's lots of others. Number nine, I've got Andre Agassi. Number eight, I've got McEnroe. McEnroe is very famous, of course, and he had an incredible year in 1984. Where I think he only lost two or three matches. One of them that scarred him mentally was the French Open. He was two sets up against Lendl and lost. Seven, uh, Connors, Jimmy Connors, incredible consistency. Have a look at Connors' record of uh, winning and then finals and semifinals. He won more Grand Slams than McEnroe, by the way. Number six, I put Lendl, quite similar, ruled the tennis world, in fact, in the 80s, apart from Wimbledon. Again, that was a bit of a black mark against him, I suppose, that he didn't win Wimbledon. But should that matter? I mean, Wimbledon may be the most prestigious, but it doesn't make it necessarily the most difficult to win. It's just whether you're a grass court player or not. Number five, I put Borg, beyond Borg. This is the big what if. I mean, he won 11 Grand Slams by the age of 25. So again, it's sort of comparable with Celes, but he quit the game voluntarily. But, you know, you can say then perhaps that's because of the pressure. If you know anything about Borg, the brilliant contrast with him and McEnroe was that McEnroe, everything was external. You know, his feelings went out. Borg bottled his feelings up and didn't, never made any exclamations on the court. You know, and someone once said his emotions were as tight as his headband. Bear in mind as well, when you're looking back at history, most of the players didn't play the Australian Open. And the Australian Open was not what it is now. Now it's fully recognised as one of the four Grand Slams. Should mention, sorry, I forgot to mention Margaret Court, whose record Djokovic has now equaled. Again, she won a lot at the, at the Australian Open. And I believe she was pre-Open era as well. But yeah, I'm sure had Borg carried on, he would have won a lot more. But he won five Wimbledons in a row and he won six French Opens. He was the original King of Clay before uh, Rafael Nadal. Number four, I put Pistol Pete Sampras. And then you've got the big three. I've always put Nadal as number three, partly because so many of his Grand Slam victories were at one Grand Slam, which is obviously Roland Garros, French Open. He's still an absolute legend. I mean, <laughs> don't get me wrong. And um, in terms of will to win and everything and mental strength, physical strength as well. He's, he's groundbreaking. And then number two, I put Roger Federer. Obviously, he did everything before Novak Djokovic. And Novak Djokovic is just slowly beating all of Federer's records, you know, starting with obviously the Grand Slam record, but then most weeks at number one, most years ending the year as number one, most ATP finals, etc., etc. He's just beating most of Federer's records now. Federer did change the game forever. And it's a shame really that maybe Nadal, because he came after Federer, but he's been superseded by Djokovic. That's probably, like I said, why I'd put him at number three. So anyway, that's my, that's my top 10. And I wanted to say something really about Djokovic. I'm going to come on to media in a sec, but this thing about the crowds not liking Djokovic or Djokovic being very unlikable compared to Federer and Nadal, I think that's absolute rubbish, frankly. I think that's just one of those media creations that, you know, it's just planting an idea that certain that a certain number of people just 
latch on to and believe. I mean, there's a lot of evidence for that, and we've talked ad nauseum about that. You know, the media creates something, and unfortunately, the majority of the public, maybe even the vast majority, just go along with it, really. The things about Djokovic, obviously he went gluten-free at a certain point, and I remember he was pretty much equal with Andy Murray, number three in the world, behind Federer and Nadal, about uh, 2010, 11, and that's when he started to make his rise. And uh, Andy Roddick, who's always good value, he was a great player, but he's also a very, very funny guy. He said, oh yeah, I beat Djokovic when he was full of gluten. Full of gluten, as they would say in America. There's that, and then there's obviously the vaccine thing, because not only he's now got two more Grand Slams than Nadal and four more than Federer, but he also missed, well, we missed Wimbledon in 2020, but I suppose Federer and Nadal were still around then, so in theory they could have won that tournament. But he also missed what was it, three, four Grand Slams because of uh, the vaccine issue. There was also one where he was uh, disqualified from the US Open for hitting someone with a ball, not intentionally, but he whacked the ball away and it hit somebody. Okay, that's his own fault. But um, the point I'm making is that at what seems to be his second peak, you know, arguably he's playing as, as well as ever. I think 2015 was a lot of people consider the best season by anyone, but uh, he's not too far away from that. And uh, I don't know, I like the guy. I think he's a nice fellow and I'm pretty neutral on Nadal, but Federer I just find a bit smug and he's too sort of mainstream golden boy, you know, just says all the right things. And, you know, I think he does do charitable work and I'm sure he's giving a bit back and I'm sure he's a decent fellow, but he's got the other oh, Roger Federer watches and I think he's bought a bit into how incredible he is. Djokovic took a stand, you know, he cares about what he puts inside his body in terms of gluten and... Uh, questionable vaccines i think even i think everyone now would say they're they're at least questionable so yeah those are my thoughts anyway about the actual tennis now let's get on to um media so i started um a new job part-time job to supplement the teaching and life coaching and podcasting a few months ago and i in my car i i put on mainstream radio breakfast radio when i'm driving to work in the morning and when i'm listening to it i kind of think I'm, try- I'm kind of analysing it. You know, not all the time. I'm not... <laughs> I don't drive myself mad analysing it, but I characterise it as a it's a high-energy fantasy world, <laughs> the world of uh, breakfast radio. It's perfect for driving to work, really, because it the energy never slackens, and you get these news sound bites about important things and cheery travel reports about mayhem on the M25. But the main thing about it is that when I really thought about it, there's an absolute obsession with celebrities. Do a little experiment. I mean, watch mainstream TV, listen to mainstream radio, and you'll only have to wait about a minute before they start talking about celebrities. And, oh, my God, oh, I met Tom Cruise when I was in America. And the message it's giving you, and I'm not saying that the DJs are doing this on purpose. They're not. don't know whether they've analysed it or not, but it's all about people who are better than you and better looking than you. And part of that is to do with you buying products because, of course, it's all... It's all got advertising attached to it. So if you think about it, this world is telling you, it's constantly reminding you that are people with more money and better, more well-known than you and more glamorous. And then here's a load of products you can buy. And it's not telling you that you need them to look like Tom Cruise or Angelina Jolie, whoever it is. But that is the subtle message that's been given to you. I kind of take it for what it is. I mean, I like a lot of mainstream content. Don't get me wrong. It's just when they start talking about world affairs, then you get the what I call the propaganda of presumption, which is the presumption that 
when it's Ukraine. Putin is only the bad guy. We are only the good guys. You know, it's oversimplified. And also the fact that, you know, in a news bulletin of two minutes, this is everything you need to know about an incredibly complex world. And obviously with, um, with sport, because I don't have a telly, I do have an app that I was able to watch some of the tennis on. And um, it's very, very good. I mean, the tennis commentators and summarizers, they're very, very good at their jobs. And, you know, when we're just talking about sport, that's fine. But any time it started to irritate me is when I was watching Wimbledon and the camera just can't stop looking at Brad Pitt who happened to be there. And at the US Open, there was um, Monica Sellers, funnily enough. But there was also uh, Matthew McConaughey. And um, I'll get on to fame in a sec. But that was the irritating bit where they, they just have to keep going back to Brad Pitt. And what's Brad Pitt doing? He's just basically a normal bloke because he's not made up and he's not trying to look glamorous. He's just a bloke in a hat watching a tennis match. So why do we need to be constantly reminded that he's there? Because actually, most people don't give a shit, honestly. It's just hammering this message that Brad Pitt's important. Brad Pitt's important. It's important that Brad Pitt's there and David Beckham's there and the royal family are there. It's this constant message. But if that wasn't there, no one would care. Seriously, they wouldn't. The other point about sport is that it's inextricably linked to nationalism. Perhaps that's too strong a word. Perhaps I should say patriotism or national identity. And there's this assumption that everyone is proud to represent their country and that they've represented them not just officially, but in spirit as well. I notice there's a lot of leading questions from interviewers. Just a word about Daniel Medvedev, who lost the men's final. I love that guy. And Djokovic actually said it in his speech. He said, don't change. You know, we love your comments and how honest you are and how authentic you are. Medvedev's got no time for this bullshit. And the woman was saying, oh, her first question was, what is it about America that brings out the best in you, Daniel? And Daniel just basically ignored it and said to Novak Djokovic, what are you still doing here? (laughs) Saying, you know, why are you still winning Grand Slams? That doesn't make any sense. Fair play, though. I I should say one thing. Apart from the issue of Svitolina, the Ukraine player, didn't want to shake hands with Russians or Belarusian players at the net. And I think they, they understood that. And it wasn't really an issue after a while. Medvedev is very popular it seems in America, you know, he does play the pantomime villain, but you'd think, you know, maybe there would be an anti-Russian flavour in in how the American media or how the the person handing the trophy and doing the interviews would handle him. But, you know, they seem to like him. And similarly with Djokovic, he refused to, to get the COVID injection, but um, he doesn't really get treated any differently. Go back to Medvedev. I think it was last year, he lost the Australian Open to Nadal uh, last January. And uh, I'm sure it was that one where they were doing all these speeches about thanking the sponsors and everything. And okay, the sponsors do make it possible and all the corporate stuff. And I'm sure Medvedev was yawning or pretending to yawn. And that was brilliant. I thought he'd get absolutely pilloried for that. But perhaps when you've got enough charisma, you can get away with it. And when people think, oh, you know, he's just being authentic, then, um, you know, he gets away with it. But uh, anyway, yeah, he's one of my favorites as a personality. So let's get on to the fame aspect. So the big question really is, should we envy Novak Djokovic, Coco Goff, Brad Pitt, Leo DiCaprio, who was at the US Open hiding his face, didn't want the camera to be on him? Should we envy these people? Should we envy their money? Should we envy that they're doing a job that they all say they love? Which I would question that as well. I'll get on to that in a sec. The main thing really is lack of privacy and Think about how annoying it is when someone gossips about you. So let's say you work in an office or whatever, you're a part of a local community. And, um, you know, a lot of people would 
relate to this who live in small towns or villages, someone starts spreading a rumour about you and talking to other people and they all start believing it and you know it's untrue and you get that sense of injustice and that sense of annoyance that people are talking about you and your proverbial ears are burning. Imagine that a thousandfold and every day. You know, it's much worse if, I don't know, you're someone like Amy Winehouse, who the media knew drank too much and took uh, hard drugs and was vulnerable. And then they just would not leave her alone and everyone was in on it. When I watched the Amy... um, Netflix documentary I was so angry about they showed clips of panel shows making fun of her and stuff and you know everyone piles on and gets in on the act think about how annoying it is just when lies are being propagated about you on a small scale so just imagine that you know go back to Federer at Wimbledon this year it was 20 years since he'd won his first Wimbledon title and he basically came there to be worshipped God, Roger golden boy you're so wonderful and I was sort of a bit hard on him thinking, oh, you know, he just wants to come here and be worshipped. But then I'm thinking, what if he said, oh, actually, I don't fancy it. Then you get Federer snubs Wimbledon and all these people would come out of the woodwork. Oh, we gave you so much, Roger. We worshipped you for 20 years and you're so full of yourself. You're going to snub Wimbledon. Oh, So I suppose he didn't really have any choice. But the worship of celebrity, the thing about it is that apart from the ones with the really massive egos or the ones who've totally bought into their own celebrity, they probably don't even really want it themselves. You know, I mean, like I say, DiCaprio hiding his face. I didn't see him, by the way, but I was listening to this podcast and they were talking about it. I also saw a little clip of the match point in the Goff uh, Sabalenka match that a fan had obviously made. And just as Goff, after she embraced Sabalenka, she burst into tears and like I say, it was, you know, it was an emotional moment. You couldn't help sort of buying into it because it was obviously genuine as well. But in the long shot, you could see that immediately there's photographers just like snapping away. And just imagine that, having having a camera in your face all the time, how irritating that would be. Honestly, folks, I mean, I haven't experienced it, but I can tell you pretty much for sure that it, it would get old very quickly, unless you're one of these people that's, I don't know, so deprived of love and attention that you just need it constantly i also wanted to talk about a couple of victims of fame that are still around now i'm picking them on the women's side because i can't think of too many examples necessarily on the men's side i mentioned capriati jennifer capriati if you've never heard of her or you're only a casual tennis fan you can look up her story but um naomi osaka was at i think was at golf semi-final and like i said earlier they had a little moment a few years ago but you know osaka she dropped out of the tour and she's just had a baby and apparently she's going to come back beginning of next year. She was obviously a great player, you know, she won uh, a few Grand Slams. But if you look at her, some of her press conferences, she was regularly breaking down and you could just see this person is suffering. Yeah, they've got lots of money, but what does that mean when you're suffering? And then we've got Emma Raducanu. Exactly two years ago, she won the US Open. Absolutely incredible. 18 years old, a qualifier. She actually got through three rounds of qualifying and then won seven matches and didn't drop a set. So she won 20 sets in a row. And in the main draw, the closest set she had was 6-4. I mean, that is just unbelievable. But even before that, at Wimbledon 2021, she got through a few rounds. And then if you remember, she actually had to retire from her match because she was having breathing problems. And I remember saying to someone at the time, she spent basically two days or three days since the round before that in the 
full glare in the media and now she's having breathing problems may not have been related but um i think possibly they were and since uh, the us open win like i say exactly two years ago she's done endorsements she's had something like five six coaches since then and now she's in a hospital bed having surgeries you know, with the physical problems how much is stress related Doctors are finally, out of nowhere, doctors are now realising that a lot of illness is psychosomatic. Some people say the majority of illness is psychosomatic because the stress affects the cells in your body. I read a book years ago called Never Get Sick Again, and it was arguing that all these diseases and illnesses have names, but in the end, they're just uh, cells that malfunction. I remember about 10 years ago, I had a checkup with my local doctor, and I was saying, oh, do you think my... Um, physical injuries might be stress-related or psychosomatic. And he literally just looked through me, just totally ignored my question. But I think now they wouldn't do that. And So do you envy Emma Raducanu? Okay, she'd already made enough money just from winning the US Open to set her up, arguably for life or for the next few years at least. So do you think she feels that she needs to keep accumulating money or is it the people around her and, you know, the capitalists telling her, you've got to maximise your brand while we can. Regular listeners will know I have this podcast about John Lennon and I'm a Beatles obsessive and it's the same with the Beatles in the early days. You know, No one expected it to last, so cash in while we can. And In America, they sold bits of the sheets that they slept on in the hotel and there was a piece of toast that had been bitten into by George Harrison that got sold. And Paul McCartney told this brilliant story that when he would be at the breakfast table with his kids... They would say, oh, have you finished with that piece of toast, Dad? <laughs> Even if that's not true, it's still a good story. So, yeah, do you envy any of these people? I wouldn't really. I mean, the other question really is, is sport important? Now, if it makes people feel good, it's important. I mean, I was buzzing, I'll be honest, on Monday morning because I stayed up to watch the men's final and listen to it on the radio. I think I listened to the end of it and it literally ended as I was dropping off to sleep. I compare sport to being in the cinema. You know, if you're watch, if you're in the cinema watching a really intense film, you sort of buy into the film. But then, if a if you suddenly heard a maybe it's not a nice example, but a bomb went off or some loud noise, you heard a gunshot or something that was clearly not coming from the screen. You know, if something happened at the tennis match, God forbid, everyone would quickly be reacting to that and would probably forget they're in a tennis match or or at the cinema. So it's one of those. It's important in its own context. Now, I would argue that football has been absolutely deliberately made to seem more important than it is. And it's probably just because of the money that's going around. Maybe it all comes down to money and that's the reason that sports players are a bit more robotic and a bit more, you know, it's a bit more homogenous now. You don't quite get the characters that you used to. During the pandemic and the lockdown, it was really interesting because they were, like I said, I don't really watch football anymore, but they were showing football matches. And because there was no crowd you kind of saw it for what it was, which is just a load of blokes kicking around a bag of wind at the end of the day. And they literally had the cup final with nobody there and it just looked like a training session. And someone scored and the commentator's trying to go ballistic, but it just doesn't work without the crowd. It just seems totally incongruous how excited he is about, you know, like I say, what well, well, looks like a glorified training session. And on the TV, you, you could insert crowd noise in the same way that they have canned laughter in comedy shows. And I thought that was really interesting. But going back to this thing, this central question I said, of should we envy these people? I mean, we could envy people who like their jobs and have financial security. As I hinted at earlier, I don't think, you know, Novak Djokovic will say, I love tennis. He probably loves what tennis has brought and he likes the victories. But 
is it glamorous apart from just these big moments you know boxing snooker swimming swimming three four hours a day is that glamorous or would that just get unbelievably boring quickly just exercising you know i mean i like exercising i like going to the gym i like the runners high and all that but surely that would get a bit old and i know it's a job and you're, you're getting well paid and people go into work mentality and you think well i've i've got to work i've got to earn money but if the things we should envy are liking your job and having financial security that could apply to i don't know a chartered accountant and they haven't got any of the hassle of the glare of the media and everything I pick chartered accountant because accountant is always seen, it's always held up as the least glamorous of jobs. I think the lucky people are the ones that find the job they want. I mean, I had a friend um, when I was growing up who just loved computers and you just knew he was going to work in IT and be perfectly happy. We go back to the tennis and things like that. It's a job, but it's got extreme pressure and extreme stress. And to mention John Lennon again, I mean, John Lennon wanted to become a rock star to avoid having to get up early and have a boss in his ear hole telling him what to do. And he ended up touring around the world, hardly getting any sleep, having to wake up early and being told where to be and when. And then he had a boss, as in the head of his record company, in his ear telling him, oh, we need four killer singles this year and two killer albums. You and Paul need to... Can you do that again? You know, you've had a big hit, but we're not going to pat you on the back too much because we need another one in a couple of months. Can you do that? I think really you should envy maybe mid-level Premier League footballers or top 50 tennis players because they get fabulously rewarded. Because the money as well, I mean, after a while you can't spend that amount of money that Lionel Messi or Novak Djokovic or whoever it is they make. After a while it just becomes zeros because you, you can't spend that money. If we chuck out a couple of examples from tennis, Gael Monfils, you look at Gael Monfils, I mean, he seems to have a fantastic life. And, you know, he's won a few titles and been very well rewarded but, you know, he seems to enjoy his tennis. And Nick Kyrgios as well. There's a character saying there's no characters in sport. He's sort of made it clear. I don't know if you said this explicitly, but he's intimated. I'd rather enjoy my life than be world number one. Because everyone knows he's got the talent that he could be world number one or could have been you know, maybe even in the future. But, he, he, you know, he'd rather enjoy his life. And it seems like he is doing that. OK, the media give him a hard time. But he tends to be able to say anything he wants, really, because... When it comes from Nick Kyrgios, it's like, oh, well, we expect that. You know, if a really boring person who never says anything controversial suddenly says something controversial, it's probably not going to be good for them because there'll be more spotlight. But if Kyrgios says something controversial, it's like, oh, it's just it's Nick Kyrgios talking. So all that said, I would like to leave you with an inspirational message. And the message is, as I said, don't envy these people. You, you know, you have no idea about their lives and all the problems they're having beyond all the problems we know about that Naomi Osaka and Raducanu were having and Coco Goff's had. And let's just celebrate the fact that we're alive and I don't think it's very healthy to, let's say, envy people that you've never met. You know, I remember years ago, I had a, had a friend in London. I think I've talked about him before. He was a bit older than me and we flat shared. And we were sitting in a pub and I was talking about I don't know, various problems I was having. And he said, look around this pub. You see everyone's laughing and smiling. When you go out in the pub, people don't really want to be on a downer. And going back to what I was saying earlier, imagine you're on a radio show, the breakfast show. Good morning, everybody. It's really a terrible day. You know, um, some people have been killed in a plane crash in 
you're on the other side of the world and I'm really feeling terrible today. And you're not going to stay in your job very long, are you? It's got to be, hi everyone, it's seven o'clock in the morning and you're listening to BBC Radio 2 and here's some celebrities you need to know about, etc, etc. So, you know, everyone is struggling and suffering and all the people that you think you envy, they are as well. I could say a lot more, but um, all in fact I'm going to say two things. If you'd like to help out the show, there are links in the show notes. And if you're interested in life coaching, I am a life coach and I can fill you with all sorts of good stuff about sport and other types of psychology and uh, things to inspire you in your life. You can write to me at lifeandlifeonlypod at gmail.com. The other thing I want to say is that the next episode is going to be a compilation of a two-part appearance I made on the wonderful Luke's English podcast with the wonderful Luke Thompson. If you're wondering whether what happened to the Darren Brown happiness episodes, they will come after that. It's going to be two more of those. And that will pretty much see us to the end of the year and nearly three years of Life and Life Only. I might sneak some other stuff in before the end of the year. We'll see. There's obviously going to be parallel content. If you're a new listener, I have two other podcasts, Glass Onion on John Lennon and Film Gold. And as my friend Ken McNabb says, it's about spinning plates. You know, I'm juggling my three children. And uh, as anyone who's got three children knows, it's difficult to give them all absolutely equal love and attention at all times. Film Gold tends to be sidelined slightly. But I tried to divide my attention and tried to get podcast episodes out more or less equally between them. But anyway, thank you very much for listening. Take care and I will see you soon. Goodbye.